Thank you very much, Philip, and it's a real privilege to be here today with you at New Horizons. And uh, I just wanted to mention to you a little story as a kind of bit of light relief. Can you hear me at the back? Yes. Yes? A bit of light relief. Um, I worked a lot of my life in the psychiatry of the elderly, old age psychiatry, and um, this story kind of is around that theme. There was a man who was a, a very good golfer, uh, but he was reaching the age of 90, and his eyesight was beginning to fail him. So he found an advertisement in the local newspaper saying, elderly golfer requires assistance, somebody with excellent eyesight. So that's what the advertisement read. And anyway, he only got one reply from this advertisement, and the person who replied was aged 93. <laughs> so, he, of course, he asked him a little bit about it and said, can you see well? He said, yes, absolutely no problem at all. My eyesight is absolutely perfect. So they go out on the golf course, and he gives it a, a mighty swing. I'm not a golfer, so you can criticize my swing. I don't know how to swing. But he hit it a long way, and it went over the hill. Did you see where it went? Yes, no problem. So they climb up the hill to the top of the hill, and the golf wrestle, where is it? He says, I've forgotten. (laughs) (laughs) Anxiety can actually affect your memory, and we'll come on to that a little bit later on. Of course, we know that uh, stress is actually uh, quite a problem in our lives. Stress is a feature of everyday life. And, you know, stress can be good. If I weren't slightly stressed giving this lecture, you probably wouldn't get anything out of it at all. You know, stress, a little bit of stress is no harm because it brings arousal, uh, brings a bit of increased adrenaline around. And, of course, if you're in a very frightening situation, for example, you might imagine yourself uh, in the middle of a field with a raging bull about to get you, you know, you have two choices. Um, if you're a kind of a young man and you're feeling fit and you've got a sword at your side and the cape, you can kind of have a go, I'm going to kill that bull. Now, that won't be many of you, I think. Most of us, uh, given our opportunity, will probably run as fast as we can, leap higher than we've ever leapt before to get out of the way of that charging bull. And, of course, that is called the fight-or-flight reaction. And many of you will have been aware of that from some of your wider reading. However, the difficulty we have when we face uh, the problem of anxiety (laughs) is that actually um, anxiety is something that tends to be there a lot of the time. And so what is happening is the body is continuing to put out that adrenaline all the time. And that can make people feel extremely tired and exhausted. I've had people come to my clinics and they tell me, doctor, doctor, I feel exhausted all the time. And that can be anxiety. Of course, there can be other uh, medical conditions that would give you that similar uh, picture. But what happens is that you get exhausted through that chronic anxiety. And there tends to be a mismatch going on between uh, your ability to cope and the demands placed upon you. In other words, the demands placed upon you seem to be outweighing your ability to cope, and that results um, in anxiety. This curve, some of you may be familiar with, from again, from your wider reading, it's called the Yerkes-Dodson curve, and it's relating your level of arousal, which is here, to your quality of performance, which is here. And so you can see, for example, uh, that if you're asleep, no, nobody yet, all right. If you're asleep, your level of arousal is very low and your quality performance, well, very low. If you're bored, and I don't think anyone's bored just yet, you know, you're up here a bit, your level of arousal is higher and your quality performance is about here. If, say, you're on the way to work and you're facing something, 
then you'll be in a mildly alert state. Your quality performance is here, and your level of arousal is here. Now, today, I hope that I will be at this point, okay? The optimal level. However, if you ask me a particularly difficult question, I shall probably tip over here into stress. So no difficult questions today, please, all right? So, you know, here, basically, your level of arousal is quite high, and the quality of performance is uh, at your optimal level. However, what happens is if your level of arousal continues to rise, then actually you get stressed and your performance begins to go down. And it goes further down when you become frankly anxious. And of course, people with panic disorder here, their level of arousal is extremely high, but their quality of performance is diminished. And you can see from that the reason why it's important to somehow deal with stress and anxiety in our lives. Because actually, if we can manage to find ways to deal with it, then we'll hopefully be performing pretty well most of the time. So that is uh, something that I think is helpful for us to consider. What I want to now consider just briefly, and the way I'm doing this today is I'm looking at anxiety and stress from a a little bit of a clinical perspective first, and then I'm going to go on at the end to talk about things from a more spiritual perspective. Obviously, in a talk like this, I can't possibly cover all the conditions that will result in anxiety, because there are many of those. Anxiety is a feature of a number of clinical situations, like chronic anxiety state, uh, panic attacks, uh, phobias, um, social anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder. Anxiety is a part of all of those conditions. And I can't really go into all of those conditions today. We don't have the time uh, to do that. But what I do want to look at is how fear and anxiety affect us in a wider perspective. So first of all, how fear and anxiety uh, affect our minds. And we can see there that there are a number of things that happen to us. For example, when we're anxious, we become hyper-alert, apprehensive uh, about things. We obviously worried, anxious. We may become tearful. Um, we may have panic attacks. Panic attacks is where really you, you know, there's a, a number of features of panic attacks. We don't have time to go into all of that. But you're extremely anxious and you, you really cannot face situations and uh, etc. Unable to face situations... Phobias about, for example, flying or spiders or something of that nature. Poor concentration, poor memory. For example, I used to find, I, I ran a memory clinic when I was at Hollywell Hospital in Antrim. And in that memory clinic, I would sometimes get referred to me uh, kind of high-flying executives in their late 50s. And the question was, you know, obviously they're worried their memory doesn't seem to be functioning so well. The question they had in their minds is, am I going demented, doctor? Am I suffering from a dementia? And of course I would run all the screens and there'd be no evidence of anything like that. But what was happening is that basically in their lives they're living very stressful and uh, busy jobs. And in those lives they were, not, they, they were struggling because their memory was not just functioning perfectly. Now, because of my age, my memory doesn't function perfectly anyway. <laughs> That's an aside. But, you know, sometimes we're aware that when we're actually very anxious, we do not remember things as well. You know, what people tell you doesn't tend to sink in properly. You don't kind of absorb those memories in quite the same way. So memory can be a, an effect of uh, anxiety. Poor concentration. We may get irritable and angry. I'll just come back to that. And then sometimes we get feelings of unreality. Now, they can be a little bit unpleasant. Um, it happened to me once, actually, when I was uh, just doing my medical finals just a week or two before, and I also had some pretty severe uh, emotional difficulties just at that stage. And I remember being in a pathology lecture, and suddenly I felt that everything around me had changed in some way. It didn't feel real to me anymore. And uh, that was, a, a, and I explained to a colleague, and they said, well, that's what's happening. You're just extremely anxious. And of course, that can uh, happen. <laughs> the other thing that can happen is that you can feel that you yourself have changed in some way. And there's special names given to that. 
which I won't bore you with just at the moment. But that's some of the ways that anxiety can affect our minds. And how can it affect our bodies? And here it's very interesting because fear and anxiety can affect our bodies in all kinds of ways. In fact, if you take uh, all the systems from your head to the bottom of your feet, you know you're going to find some systems that are affected by anxiety. Of course, in saying that, one has to qualify it and say, of course, some of those symptoms can be symptoms of other conditions as well. Because we know, for example, that uh, certain medical conditions can mimic anxiety like paratoxicosis. So you have to be a little bit careful. Uh, but on the other hand, a lot of these symptoms uh, can be uh, just purely uh, related to anxiety. So here's a few of them. Um, headaches, uh, dry mouth. Um, yes, I think I'll take a little bit of water at this stage. <laughs> headaches, dry mouth. Uh, sleep disturbance, um, often a lot of difficulty getting off to sleep, shortness of breath, hyperventilation, I want to come back to that in a minute, sensitivity to noise. I sometimes used to say I could tell how anxious somebody was by just dropping a tin can just behind them and seeing how high they jump, because that sensitivity to noise is a feature of anxiety. Uh, palpitations, that's awareness of your heartbeat, tiredness, weariness we've mentioned, Pains or tightness in the chest or jaw. Lump in the stomach. Well, I must tell you a little story about pains in the chest, you know. My wife is also a medical doctor, now retired, and she tells the story of what happened in the accident and emergency department in the, I think it was the Belfast City Hospital at that stage. And, and uh, she said that a man came into the accident and emergency department and uh, he was doing this to himself. I'll just demonstrate. You probably recognise what this is. <laughs> so on the way in he was doing that to himself you see and, and uh, the doctor thought what on earth is going on he said well I'm just preparing myself he said, I'm just getting ready and they said well what's the matter he said well I've got chest pain ok you've got chest pain well I'm having a heart attack aren't I yeah. <laughs> I'm going to die so I thought I'd just prepare myself you know? so anyway he wasn't having any of that he was having a panic attack and that panic attack was causing that's uh, pain in the chest. So pains in the chest, lumps in the stomach, uh, giddiness, dizziness, and steadiness, uh, fainting and sweating, of course, pins and needles in the hands and feet, cold, clammy hands, uh, difficulty swallowing, uh, nausea, diarrhea, increased frequency of micturition, and sometimes a kind of irritable bowel, ringing in the ears or tinnitus. All of those things are bodily effects of anxiety. But of course, I'm saying at the same time that they can be related to other conditions. So you've got to be a little bit careful. And if you're worried, obviously, con uh, contact your GP. But don't contact him every day. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, we do also have interpersonal effects, um, which can uh, cause us problems. Sorry, some of those on that slide. Interpersonal effects. You see, what can happen with anxiety is that there's two kind of reactions you may have. The first reaction is a tendency to withdraw, okay? Now, all of us will have suffered from anxiety at times, and so we know our tendencies, and if I get anxious, my tendency is to withdraw, okay? On the other hand, other people respond differently, and if they get anxious, their tendency is to get angry, irritable, and lash out. But of course, both of those reactions can affect the quality of your relationships because if you withdraw all the time then people will feel you're being distant from them. On the other hand if you lash out in irritability and anger then of course that can uh, wreck your relationship. So those are some of the ways in which basically anxiety uh, can um, affect us. So what I want to do now is just move on to some of the things that we can do uh, for anxiety from the kind of practical uh, kind of little bit medical kind of side of things and, and of course this is not going to be a complete list because that would take me forever but I'm just going to give you a few things here that I think are, are important certainly um, in my own life when I was particularly uh, taking on the responsibility of uh, becoming uh, a consultant for the first time, I found that that actually um, gave me a lot of stress. You know, I've just that increased responsibility 
and you would feel very stressed. At that time, I was also leading a church, and I had five young children, so uh, there were a fair number of things going on in my life at that time. Uh, my wife survived the experience, fortunately. But, you know, uh, th that time was extremely busy for me. And I used to find that if I wasn't careful, I would get overstressed. And I used to find that actually telling myself I'm going to have one hour off every day when I just simply do something to relax, I found that very helpful. <coughs> and in that hour, I would maybe go for a walk, or I might... Uh, I enjoy playing chess, play a bit of chess or something like that, just to unwind, take my mind off what was going on, and, and just simply to plan in a relaxation time. And that was, for me, extremely valuable. And of course, there are many, many ways in which we can learn to relax. And sometimes that's a skill that people need to do, because you can live a life that's so full that actually you don't give yourself time to relax. So learning to relax in different ways, uh, walking, um, exercise, friends, I've got a whole list up there you can have a look at. Find a way in which you can learn to relax. That sounds fairly basic, but actually I believe it can be uh, quite important. Secondly, in all areas of mental health, exercise is particularly beneficial. Uh, and the same with anxiety. You will know, for example, uh, many of you will know that you know, if you're feeling very anxious, something you can do is go for a strenuous walk or a bit of a run. You know, at the end of it, you feel a lot better. It releases endorphins in the brain. It does all kinds of other things. And the exercise is very, very valuable. Also, there's evidence to show that if you strengthen the body, it gives you more resources to cope with the stressful situations that can happen. So that, again, can be uh, very valuable uh, for us. Um, time management is, is a skill that, you know, all of us need to learn to a degree. And of course, there are whole books written on this, so how can I possibly mention it in about two minutes flat? But really, um, one of the basic skills uh, to try and think about is this, that actually, if you say to yourself, I have half an hour, and in that half an hour, particularly if you're a busy mother, in that half an hour, I've got to go and collect the children from school, I've got to get the lunch on, I've got to make an important phone call, and I really must go to the shop as well and get something, and I've got something, uh, you know, I must see something very quickly. And you say to yourself, well, actually, you are not going to get that done in half an hour. It's too much. So learning to say to yourself, instead of saying, all these things I've got to get done in half an hour, instead saying, what are the important things that I can do effectively in that half an hour, then actually, and do those, that actually makes a big difference. So sometimes looking carefully at your life and thinking, planning it and say, I've got this time, can I do that in this time? And the answer may be, no, I can't. There's not enough time to do that. In that case, you know, learning to say no to things or learning to prioritize in different ways, learning to manage your time in an effective way can be very, very important. Sometimes the biggest lesson we need to learn is to say no to things sometimes, to say, I cannot do that because actually I don't have the time to do that effectively. Because remember that diagram, if you try and do too much, then you slip over into less productivity. You're not going to do effectively what you're, what you're planning to do because you're not giving yourself enough time to do it. So time management skills, of course, the whole book's written on that, but it is very important to learn them and to practice them. Now, I hope you're going to be cooperative on this next one. If you have a serious medical condition or you're, you know, or you're highly anxious, don't do this. But if you're feeling fairly okay, fairly okay, uh, what I want you to do now in the next um, uh, 30 seconds is I want you to breathe in and out as fast as you can. We have a GP in the audience, so don't worry. We'll be okay. But just for the next 30 seconds, breathe in and out as fast as you can. Go like that. Keep going. 
that's probably enough. Okay. Um, Tell me how you feel. <laughs> what? Right-headed? <laughs> mouth dry? Light-headed mouth dry? Anything else? Dizzy. Dizzy, yeah. Anything else? Heart racing. Heart racing, yes. Anything else? Just incapable of anything. Yeah, yeah. And I sometimes have asked my patients to do that in clinic, particularly those who are anxious, because what it tends to do is it tends to bring on your feelings of anxiety, okay? It tends to make them worse. And you find that many, many people, when they get very anxious, they over-breathe. And then when they're aware that they're over-breathing, their over-breathing actually gets even worse. Now, what is happening in the body when that happens is this then actually the oxygen level in your body is staying the same, but your carbon dioxide level in the blood is falling. And when the carbon dioxide level in the blood falls, the little blood vessels feeding the brain, they shrink. And so the blood to your brain actually reduces. And of course, if you carry on that, then you might actually faint. And what happens when you faint? You stop breathing briefly and the blood chemistry corrects itself, and then you wake up and say, oh, what happened? <laughs> I fainted. You know. So that over-breathing is actually related to being very anxious. Now, we don't have time to do this, but if you breathe in and out slowly, you know, and you can count yourself into the, uh, breathe into the count of four, out to the count of seven, that kind of thing. I've just given a little explanation there. But if you do that, then actually, um, you know, you will then slow your breathing down. And you will feel relaxed. Now, the value of that as a simple exercise is this. There are many people around who have panic attacks or get extremely anxious. And they say, I cannot face going into that situation. Maybe it's a supermarket or something. Because last time I was there, I had a panic attack. And they cannot face that. But on the other hand, if you're able to train them to slow their breathing down and maybe sit down for a few minutes, slow their breathing down, and that will bring you into a relaxed condition, then you find you can go and face that situation and overcome it. So just simple breathing exercises can be extremely valuable in helping you if you're facing a very anxiety provoking situation. Yeah? Okay. Um, again, I'm only going through some very basic things here, but problem-solving techniques, again, can be very, very valuable. Um, again, when I was a very busy uh, consultant in my early days, at the end of the day, I would often find I've got 30 or 40 things running through my mind, racing through my mind. And I found that it needed discipline to write them all down, to write a list of everything that was going through my head. And then next to that list, I would put, is there anything I can do about that tonight? Before I go off duty, is there anything I should be doing? And occasionally, I would say, yes, I ought to ring the ward and check that that medication is being given properly, or something of that nature. And then if I couldn't do anything about it, then actually, I would say, put it aside and say, right, that's tomorrow's job, not tonight's. Let's relax and enjoy the evening. And sometimes writing things down can be very valuable because, you see, the tendency of anxiety is for thoughts to go round and round in your head all the time. They tend to just go round and round. But actually, if you make a discipline of writing them down and then looking at them and making up your mind what you can do about something, that can be a help in kind of reducing those anxious thoughts. So examining the problem in that kind of way uh, can be uh, very, very valuable. Um, cognitive behaviour therapy uh, can be valuable in those who need further help with anxiety. It's very helpful in looking at anxiety-provoking situations, anxiety-provoking thoughts, and ways of dealing with them. It can be extremely helpful to sometimes have a therapist involved when anxiety is severe, 
helping you face difficult situations. That comes in particularly with panic disorder and phobias, that kind of thing, that therapy alongside the cognitive behaviour therapy. So that can be extremely valuable. And sometimes medication is necessary. In severe, uh, overwhelming anxiety, uh, you know, I've had patients in hospital with severe, overwhelming anxiety. Not very commonly, but occasionally. They just cannot cope. And sometimes in that situation, you know, benzodiazepines, Valium can be valuable as a short-term uh, treatment for that overwhelming anxiety. The reason we don't like giving uh, benzodiazepines, things like Valium, longer term, as most of you are aware, there is an addictive uh, risk with them, so we don't like to give them long term. But sometimes as an intermittent <coughs> treatment or a short-term treatment, they can be extremely valuable drugs. And I know some of my medical colleagues won't agree with me saying this, but occasionally when somebody has very severe anxiety, the problems of the anxiety are worse than actually the problems of the risk of a slight addiction potential. So there you go. They can be valuable. Things like serotonin, uh, SSRI, serotonin reuptake blockers can be useful in anxiety. And there are other medications that can be given as well in fairly severe anxiety. So that's just some of the medical background, some of the general background uh, on anxiety. And now just I want to look a little bit at the scriptures and what the scriptures tell us about anxiety because this is equally and not much more important. And uh, I think that this is uh, very, very helpful to us as well because the teaching of Jesus is just absolutely wonderful. Um, I've had, in my kind of medical career, I've had... Uh, a lot of different experiences and I've taken time out from medicine completely at times. And so one of those periods was in 1990 uh, when myself, my wife and our five young children uh, we left England and we went to live in Cyprus for six years and I was asked to go to lead a church in Limassol, Cyprus. And so we were doing that for a couple of years and then we went on to uh, begin a few other small churches there. And in leading that church I gave up my medical practice completely. I, wasn't, I didn't do any medicine for, about, for over two and a half years. And I was leading the church. And in that experience, of course, uh, you know, you do things because you feel that God is calling you to do them. And uh, that's the way we live. We want to always please the Lord in everything. And so I felt this was the right decision for us. But it was an unpaid job. I didn't get any pay for it. I had a little bit of money coming through from <coughs> rental of our house in London and one or two other things. But after 18 months, I basically got rid of any, every asset I could possibly get rid of. And I just had a few coins left in my pocket. And I thought, I have five children and a wife to support. What am I going to do? And uh, I went to the Greek supermarket in Cyprus. Of course, it was just before the Orthodox Easter. And uh, people in Cyprus tend not to eat so much meat, so the shopkeepers hike up the price of vegetables. And all I wanted to buy was some cauliflowers, because I had some cheese at home in the bridge. I thought, well, I can feed the children a bit more with some cauliflower cheese for the next couple of meals. After that, I have no idea what I'm going to do. But, you know, God, you have brought me here. I'm here because I feel called of you to lead this church and do what I'm doing. I feel this is your calling on my life. But, Lord, I really would like some cauliflowers. <laughs> and so I prayed in the shop and said, Lord, I'd like some cauliflowers, but I don't know what to do. And I got home and I opened my kitchen door and then I opened, uh, and, and I saw on the table in front of me three great big cauliflowers, plus a lot of other vegetables. And I said to my wife, what happened? Did these drop through the roof? I've just been, I've just been praying for cauliflowers, and here they are. What has happened? And of course, my wife said, no, that's not quite what happened. But you remember a couple of days ago, I did some babysitting for a family from our church who ran a market garden. And they said, the man said, today, I just knew I had to come round to your home and give you cauliflowers and a lot of other vegetables. And then after that great big bag of food arrived outside our doorstep. And then the crisis passed. I've never been in that situation again. 
But what does it show me? It shows me, of course, that we have a Heavenly Father. A Heavenly Father who deeply, deeply loves us and is totally and absolutely committed to us. So when, for example, we read verses like this where it says, do not worry, where Jesus says, you know, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes, etc. Jesus is telling us, you know, you don't need to worry about those practical things. I am your heavenly Father. Of course, it adds the thing at the bottom, you know, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be yours as well. Of course, that's additional. You know, the promise is not necessarily made to everybody. It's made to those who are seeking his kingdom. But you see, if in your heart you've made that decision and said to the Lord, Lord, I'm here for you, and I'm here to seek your kingdom and to do your will in my life, if that's the basic decision of your life, then you have a heavenly Father who just loves you. Of course, our heavenly Father is generous and sometimes blesses those who are not in that position as well, which is fine. But he is committed to blessing those who are seeking his faith and seeking his kingdom. And of course that's something that we discover for ourselves in that crisis uh, situation. Um, of course, the other verses that come out when we talk about anxiety are Paul's verses where he talks in Philippians chapter 4. And again, many of you will be very familiar with these verses of scripture, but this is what Paul says, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, again, Paul is telling us about a process. And the process is to cast all our anxieties on our Heavenly Father. And you know, the the idea is not kind of some, oh Jesus, I'm really struggling. It's not that. It's identifying the problem. It's saying, this is the problem. Lord, I'm throwing this problem on you because I don't want to do that. And you know, the wonderful thing about our relationship with our Heavenly Father through Christ is that we can throw on him every pressure, every anxiety, everything we're going through. He is able to take all the pressure and all the anxiety that we throw upon him. That's what comes through in the Psalms, so often with David. But the beauty of that process is this. That at times, you know, you and I will know, I know certainly, when I've spent quite a while sometimes just making sure I've thrown all my anxiety on the Lord, there does come a sense of peace. The peace isn't always that the problem's been answered, but the peace is knowing that God is in the process. He's somehow heard the prayer. He's somehow in the business of, of dealing with that situation. Of course, sometimes it's not a matter of spending hours doing that. It's an immediate thing. I used to find that in my consultant life, I'd get run, and I was in my office, and my ward was a few hundred yards away, and I had to walk from one to the other to deal with the problem sometimes. And sometimes the need would be very urgent. Doctor, doctor, this patient's just murdering somebody. <laughs> Not quite like that, but you know, uh, you know, you've got to respond fairly quickly. And so you would respond quickly. You'd leave what you're doing and go and try and sort the problem out. But in that process, of course, I had to walk that distance, of course, there would be that sense of praying. Say, Lord, this is the problem. This is the situation. Now show me what to do. Lead me, guide me in this situation. And of course, in that situation, I would find that I would have peace. Peace because I would know that God was with me in that situation and helping me. You know, the beautiful thing about the Christian walk is that it is a walk of relationship. You know, the Christian walk is a walk supremely (coughs) of relationship. And one of the things that we need to do in our lives is to concentrate on our relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ. And of course, you will know some of the most wonderful words that Jesus speaks are these, where he says, 
Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, I believe in the words of Jesus. I do believe them. There are many of us in this room who possibly struggle to believe those words. But twice Jesus is saying there is rest for those who follow him and belong to him. Rest. Not anxiety, there's rest. But that rest is something very, very special and very, very wonderful that Jesus gives. And he gives it in a particular way. First of all, of course, he says, come to me, all of you who are weary. Come to me, not go to anybody else. Now, I'm not saying, obviously, we need help from other resources at times. That's not wrong. But Jesus said, come to me and throw your burdens on me, weary and, and laden, throw them on me. And then he says something very interesting. He says, take my yoke upon you. Of course, what does that mean? Well, of course, in that agricultural context in, in the Middle East, what would, he, would they see? They would see oxen plowing the fields. And if you have one ox here and one ox here, and you set them off to plow the field, and you don't yoke them together, what do you get? You get an almighty mess in the field. One's going one way, one's going the other way. It's all over the place. What do you get when you yoke them together? Straight line. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying, take my yoke upon you. Don't try and live your life yourself. Don't try and do it all your way. Do it my way. And what does that mean? It means yoke together with Jesus. Say, Jesus, you're the senior partner here. We're in partnership together. It's not all you, it's not all me. It's partnership together. We're walking together with the yoke of Jesus. And we're saying, Jesus, I am committed to going your way in my life. I'm committed to listening to you. I'm committed to hearing you and walking in your pathway. And then Jesus says, there will be rest. And it's not the rest of inactivity. It's not the rest where situations around us are perfect. No. But it is the rest of saying, I am connected to the divine. I'm connected. In my life, I'm connected because I'm giving the situations to Jesus as I'm walking along. I'm saying, Jesus, help me. Jesus, show me your way. Jesus, direct me. Jesus, help me in this difficult situation. Jesus, show me what to say to this person who's asking me a difficult question, as you will in a minute or two. It's basically that ongoing relationship. And Jesus intends that that ongoing relationship should be a relationship of rest. Now, of course, the reality is that we're not always there. And even the Apostle Paul was not always there. He says, I have a lot of anxiety about the churches at times. So we're not always there. We're not always there. But I think as we develop that relationship, we can be much more there. You understand me? And it means having that yoke of Jesus upon us, saying, Jesus, I really do want to go your way in my life. That's the primary decision, of course, saying to Jesus, I want your way, not my way. I want to go your way in my life. And of course, when we do that, we find that reality of an ongoing relationship with Christ. And that ongoing relationship with Christ brings us into uh, that position of rest. Now, I know that I've not answered every question. Let me just mention a couple of things as I close. Um, these are a couple of books I've written over the last few years. This one is Mindful of the Light, which is basically a look at six um, medical uh, kind of psychiatric conditions, anxiety, depression, suicide, um, addictions, schizophrenia, dementia, with each chapter on the kind of clinical side of things, 
and then a second chapter on the spiritual help that's available. And then this one, finding the yes and the mess, is more just looking at the problem of the Christian and suffering. Okay, so they're available at the front down here if you want to have a look at those uh, in a few minutes. Um, and now I want to try and help you with any questions you may have. I must say, I may not have the answers to your questions, but I will do my best. So if you've got any particular questions that you want to uh, ask me, I will do my best with them. Thank you. I'll just repeat that as far as I can. The question is around the fact that, yes, you know, these verses are on the screen. Yes, you know, the Bible tells us a lot about how to deal with anxiety. But sometimes a person is in a situation where they find life extremely difficult and they recognize that despite their seeking to apply these verses to their lives, there's still a tremendous amount of anxiety going on. And how do you deal with that situation? Well, I think that the reason, in a sense, for putting the two together and saying it's not just purely spiritual and it's not purely medical is the fact that often it is a combination of the two. For example, I do think that some of the practical uh, things we've talked about can be very helpful as ways of dealing with anxiety. And, and there are others as well that I haven't dealt with uh, just now. But there are other methods as well. So some of those methodological things can be very helpful and some of those practical things can be very helpful as well. And of course there are other techniques that are out there as well. So some of that can be extremely valuable. And um, we also have to recognize, and I didn't necessarily mention this, that anxiety can tend to run in families a little bit. There can be a family relationship with it. And some people have more of a struggle with anxiety than others. Some people, you know, have had anxiety for many, many years and really struggled with it. And I'm not saying that we can necessarily always see a total answer in every situation because we do live in a broken and hurt world and we're not necessarily going to see everything moving into perfection. We're dealing with a situation where we're aware that we're part of two kingdoms. We're part of the kingdom of this world because of our inheritance and because of who we are. And we're also seeking, we're in the kingdom of Christ. And so the two are interplaying in our lives. We can say that we're moving towards the goal, but we may not always necessarily have reached it. And so in that situation, you know, other things can be helpful. You know, medication may sometimes be necessary. Therapy may sometimes be necessary, you know, depending on the situation. And we mustn't be afraid of those things and say we mustn't necessarily go along those lines. Um, I must say, and I didn't mention in the talk, I, I must say I'm not over keen uh, on mindfulness as a technique. Uh, the reasons for that, I think, where it's coming from, from its Buddhist origins, I'm not very keen on it, uh, which is why I don't necessarily mention it over, over much, but some people have found that useful as well. And, you know, the, the discussion on that can sometimes be fairly endless, and I'm not necessarily sure we should spend a lot of time discussing that this morning, but that's my opinion on the matter. So I'm not sure that answers your question completely, because I don't think there is a complete answer to that question, but... That's as far as I can really go with it, I think, in this context. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. yes. Thank you. The question is, can I comment on the verse in, from Ephesians where it says, we wrestle not against principalities and powers, but against the rulers of darkness, etc., how that verse goes. And I think the reality of that is that, yes, there are dark forces out there, and yes, we sometimes are engaging with them. Um, and, of course, we are in a situation of spiritual conflict in our lives very often, and, you know, the more we seek to follow the Lord uh, closely, we will be aware sometimes that we are having opposition to us. The difficulty we've got is trying to get help as to understand the nature of that opposition. You see, sometimes I'm told that uh, people are under demonic forces, and actually, if I look at it carefully, realistically, I think the person is actually suffering from an acute anxiety state or reaction. I wouldn't necessarily have said that's demonic forces. On the other hand, we do know that demonic forces are extremely real. And yes, you know, I have been involved 
occasionally in the deliverance kind of situation. So we know those are real. The difficulty we've got is trying to work out what is what. And there I think I'm dependent on my Christian brothers and sisters who have more a gift of, a gift of discernment in that area than necessarily I would. But yes, we are involved in warfare. Yes, we are involved in that situation. Yes, the question is, can anxiety be a learned behaviour uh, from your parents or your upbringing? I think the answer to that is almost certainly yes, you know, and that a lot of anxiety can be absorbed from parents or others with, in, with whom you're in a close relationship. Yes, anxiety can be learned in that situation, and because it can be learned, it can also be unlearned. And the question is, I didn't mention counselling, and is counselling important in trying to get, get to the root of anxiety and rabbit? The question is, the answer of course is counselling is very important. Um, the difficulty I've got in a talk like this is exactly what I mentioned, what I leave out. I did talk about cognitive behaviour therapy, which in a sense of a form of the wider brief of counselling. I could have mentioned counselling. There are also all kinds of other therapies that are out there, some of which are good and some of which are less good. But counselling certainly and seeking to get to the root of something can be extremely valuable, particularly if you've got a skilled counsellor. And sometimes, obviously, if it's connected with Christian difficulties, sometimes a Christian counsellor may be even more beneficial. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. The, the questions around the fact of can we give extra training in our churches to uh, those who are anxiety and can we even use mental health as evangelism tool? I'm delighted you mentioned that because it gives me the opportunity just to mention something. Over the last seven years or so, I've been running courses of four lectures at a time uh, for the general public on, on aspects of mental health. So I've often done anxiety, depression, suicide and addictions. And the purpose of that has been that I believe there are many, many people out there who do not darken the doors of our churches who are also struggling with mental health disorders. So I invite them along to a public lecture. I spend the first hour talking about that subject. Then I take a tea break. And then afterwards I share what the gospel and how the word of God interacts with that. For those who wish to stay, of course, hopefully we will get leave which is fine, but if they stay, then we can share something. Because I do believe that, you know, this, this aspect is, you know, where we can go in and we can accurately inform and we can help people to understand and that's beneficial of itself, okay? On the other hand, if they stay and then you're able to engage them in some spiritual discussion as well and share a bit from the Word of God, of course, then they get the opportunity to hear what God can say. So in that context, the first part of this lecture, I would give over an hour, have a tea break, and then spend 20 minutes on the spiritual side of things. So I do believe that kind of approach is very beneficial. And also I believe that additional training for our churches and church members and church leaders can also be extremely valuable. Certainly, uh, thank you. The question is, is the, is the rate of anxiety going up or are we seeing more? Some of the more recent statistics I saw showed that uh, the evidence of stress and anxiety in young people in particular had gone through the roof over the last few years and it is very much higher than it used to be. And I think, I think there are all kinds of causes, some of which I think are sociological change that are beginning to bring in that and people are just not coping well. Uh, with anxiety, and it is actually getting much higher. Function. Yes. The question is around, you know, um, some situations tend to be more anxiety-provoking than others, and the particular point mentioned was looking after, for example, a, a person with dementia and the, the anxiety that can result from that kind of situation. Um, I think one of the things that can sometimes be helpful in, in a particular anxiety-provoking situation, as you've mentioned, is knowing as much as you possibly can about the situation and about the illness. So, for example, if it's dealing with somebody with Alzheimer's disease and dementia, to learn as much as you possibly can about that condition so you know a little bit more what to expect and what, when to expect it to get professional help to fully understand it and also sometimes in that situation to get additional help for yourself because sometimes you find you're in a situation with a one-on-one -on -one situation and actually it is too much and sometimes to get 
further help, uh, professional help, or friendship help to help you deal with the situation can be useful. So sometimes when you're facing that, to write down what the situation is, all the problems connected with that situation, to work out what problems I can deal with in that situation and what problems I might need further help in, that kind of way of breaking down a problem can, I think, be helpful and useful. So the question is, if you're dealing, if you've got somebody and you're fairly close to them and they're suffering with anxiety, uh, are there things you shouldn't do? Well, I think that in that, in our relationships with others, you know, the key thing I always believe is having uh, a compassionate heart, a heart that loves and cares for the other person. And that is not easy when somebody puts you under considerable pressure day after day after day. It's not easy. But I think that's where we come back to our relationship with the Lord, our individual relationship with the Lord, spending time with the Lord, listening to him, and finding his grace and help in dealing with that situation. And again, sometimes uh, getting further help in a particular situation can be valuable. I think the important thing is uh, understanding is very, very important. And understanding and not criticizing is important. Sometimes there comes a situation where you may have to say something directly, but when we say some things directly, we should seek to, as it were, speak the truth in love and not necessarily be critical in our thinking. So we may need to say things, but you know, we may need to sometimes give a bit of direction and say this person may need a bit further help in this way or whatever. But that is avoiding being critical. Now, obviously, what you've said there is a very, very big question. So what I've just done is give you a very short answer. And in a sense, it demands a lot more than that. I'm aware of that. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's a beautiful insight. And we just are very glad you shared that with us. And I think that's the benefit of, you know, people who've walked with God for a long time. And they're saying, actually, there's a wholeness at the centre. And that wholeness comes through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that everything is perfect. It doesn't mean necessarily that we totally we won't, won't have any more anxiety. But it, there is a sense of wholeness that comes through our relationship with Christ. And so I'm very grateful for that. Uh, insight. Thank you. I think that's, that's probably a good time to bring things to a conclusion. Uh, if you'd like to show your appreciation to...